Good morning, everyone. Good morning, beautiful church. Word of warning, I'm not Brock Ashley. Um, I found out in the first service that Brock picked a chair that wasn't meant for short people. Uh, so bear with me as we talk about Paul uh, bearing with his church. Um, before we begin, uh, let's just open up in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for being in this room. Thank you for your love. You are a good, good father. May we be reminded of that today. Lord, as we just recently celebrated a cultural holiday in our country, Veterans Day, may we just remember, greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friend. Thank you, Lord, for being in our hearts. Please be with the words today, and may they pierce us as a double-edged sword. You're good, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to continue this morning the second half of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For those who may not know me, my name's Jeff. I work in the school district here in town. Um, I just kind of want to review a little bit of Paul telling the Corinthian believers that it's not him, it's them, it's the false apostles that he's speaking out against, defending his apostleship, kind of where we've been. Chapter 10, a few weeks back, began that process of Paul defending his apostolic credentials. These Judaizers, these false apostles, uh, called him various names. They said his speech was contemptible. They probably called him short and bald and any numbers of, I don't know why we're laughing, any number of names to discredit him. And he began to remind them kind of two analogies that he used of who they are, what he wanted them to be, and his relationship to them, and why his apostolic credentials mattered. One being that marriage betrothal concept, something that is often, I think, lost in our Western society, the idea of betrothal. Because he was wanting to present the Corinthian believers as a pure virgin bride to Christ. And as their father, the father of their church, having established that church, having gone to an area to evangelize a place that had not been blazed before, he reminded the church there that sometimes false apostles can be seen as angels of light. They had an enticing message, a way to make the Corinthian believers feel like they could be more spiritual. And he's going to call that on the carpet for what it is. And they put up with it. They tolerated it. 
There were many things, as we've read through Corinthians over the last number of weeks together, that we've recognized that the Corinthian believers have put up with and have tolerated, and they boasted about their tolerance. And so to Paul, this is a very personal message. And he wants to bring them back. And so as we begin to dive in here, beginning in verse 16, 16 through 19, again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do receive me even as foolish, that I may, excuse me, that I also may boast a little, that which I am speaking, I am not speaking as the Lord would, but as in foolishness and this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, bear with the foolish gladly. I've heard Brock say these words uh, a number of times over the last few weeks, sanctified sarcasm. Um, I've heard Chuck Smith say those words. When Brock had asked me to, to speak on this topic, my initial read of it, was sarcasm, and for those who know me know I enjoy sarcasm a little bit. I like to poke fun at myself, my height, my lack of hair, anything else about me uh, that can just poke fun at me. And I appreciated being able to see that perspective coming out of Paul because he's going to talk to them in a sarcastic tone again today as a way to prove his point of who he is for their sake. Because in verse 17, he says, I'm not speaking as the Lord would, but as in foolishness and this confidence of boasting. Paul feels as though he's wasting time having to speak to his credentials because it's taking time away from the gospel. Because if there's one message he wants to bring back to the Corinthians is the simplicity of Scripture. Christ's death and resurrection. In olden days before social media someone would, would be there to herald the truth. I'm reminded a little bit of uh, maybe the Disney movies Aladdin, and we have the genie who speaks on behalf of Prince Ali going around and, and heralding who he is to come. Paul is doing that for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the truth. Someone had to herald for the king, capital K. And so he's going to focus on his defense to correct their course Because if I could take a moment and, and make a connection to golf, one sport that I am not gifted at at all, we often slice a little bit in our path, in our faith. And so for those of us who have ever played golf, you recognize the principle, hopefully enough, that generally speaking, you want to hit the ball in a straight, narrow. We call it the fairway. I couldn't help but notice a lot of spiritual connections as, as I started to make this connection to golfing. My shot often looks like what you see on the screen there. I've golfed once in the last three years. Um, in my golfing tenure, I've hit many trees. I've seen people get hit. I've seen a car get hit. I've seen a building get hit. In fact, I'm not sure, you know, I say all that out loud why I, why I golf. I'm reminded specifically, if you can bear with me in a little foolishness of my own, 
one individual who's not with us today, and in fact probably knew that this was coming, and maybe this was, maybe this was the vine on the part of, of the Lord. There's one person in our congregation that I have hit with a golf ball. That person is in the Philippines today. And I'm wondering if poor Nick knew that I was going to be here today doing this. And so we understand as I get off course a little bit, I'm no longer in the fairway, but I've, I've landed in the rough. It's difficult to get out of. Maybe I land in the sand and the dirt. Maybe I've landed behind a tree. Maybe I'm lost in the woods looking for my ball so I can correct my course. And as poor Nick was standing in about waist-high weeds, looking for his ball 150 yards ahead of me. As I'm aiming this direction, he's over here not paying attention to me, because why, why should he? My ball did what you see on the screen there. And it was a moment of truth. That's headed for him. It's got eyes. And I don't remember exactly what I hollered to poor Nick in that process. But he got the message too late. <laughs> and naturally, what do we do as, as humans when we see that someone could potentially be hurt, but we also find it hilarious in the moment? We kind of go, <laughs> So as I'm driving my cart as fast as it'll go to catch up to Nick, I have watched him drop into those weeds because he was lost looking for his ball. I'm lost looking for the path. I've injured someone in the process. All this to say... Nick made it out okay, and he's doing a great work for the Lord as we speak. And there's a spiritual connection there that we were both lost in the weeds. How often do we find ourselves doing that from time to time in our faith, needing course adjustments? And that's what Paul's trying to do here for his Corinthian believers who feel as though he's lost touch because the False apostles, these most eminent apostles, as Paul speaks sarcastically, these apostles, so to speak, are ridiculing Paul and trying to take away from his message to these believers. And so Paul says, fine, I'll play that game. You want to boast? We can certainly boast. But what you don't understand is I'm not going to boast in my feats, my strengths. I'm not going to boast in how strong I am how well I can speak or how well I can see. I'm not going to boast in your games, your Olympics. I'll boast of what my weakness is. And much like Marty McFly and the great doc, if we go back to the future and we fast forward with verse 18, boasting according to the flesh, he's going to boast also. Looking into chapter 12, our content to come, chapter 12, verses 9, through 11, Paul says, after praying for a thorn to be removed, he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness than power, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. 
And if we leave 1985 and come back to 1955, the present of where we're at today, for those of you who understand the Back to the Future reference, we're going to have one of those great Scott moments as we read what Paul actually brings up in boasting about his weakness. The Strong's Dictionary, uh, some of you may have it in the back of your Bibles. We're fortunate enough to live in the age of technology where we can look this up rather quickly online. Strong's Dictionary, the original Greek word in verse 19, wise, states that it is used ironically in this context. Paul is not actually calling them wise. They bear with foolishness. They put up with things that they shouldn't. Remember, they boasted in an incestuous relationship and claimed that they were so tolerant that they put up with it. And so as we get into verse 20, Paul again is going to focus on what these false apostles, these Judaizers, are realistically trying to do to the Corinthian believers. For you bear with anyone, if he enslaves you, if he devours you, if he takes advantage of you, if he exalts himself, if he hits you in the face. That last one hit me a little bit. You can find reference to Christ being smacked by one of the temple guards uh, for not liking the way he was speaking to the high priest at the time, just before his execution. Last week, Brock, in the first half of chapter 11, talked about how the false apostles, these Judaizers, state we need more than just Jesus. We need Jesus plus fill in the blank. The law from the Mosaic Covenant, various rules, the laundry list of things that we must do in our lives to keep ourselves holy, sanctified, pure. And Paul says it's, it's not that at all. You have been washed. Reminds me, kind of a quirky TV show I used to watch about 15 years ago with an actor named Tony Shalhoub. Maybe some of you remember it, called Monk. He, in, in being unable to solve the murder mystery that happened to his wife, developed obsessive compulsive tendencies. Always wiping his hands clean when he would walk down the street touching every single fence post, pulling out a tissue to touch doorknobs. And he couldn't function otherwise in his life. I felt for Monk. Let's see a little bit about what Jesus has to say when it comes to washing that outside of the cup. If you flip back with me into Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 through 28. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and really Jesus taking the gloves off and calling them to the carpet. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. I'm probably not smart enough to actually know what that means. But that sounds pretty intense. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I don't know about you, but that seems pretty to the point. Jesus talking about what truly matters is the heart. Not that laundry list of rules that we try to abide by, the 613 commands under the Mosaic law, when realistically we all struggle with a top 10 list of that. If we look back a little bit further in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and thir- to 30, by contrast, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load or my burden is light. Dear friends, that's what Jesus is trying to convince of us today. That's what Paul's trying to convince of these Corinthian believers, that they don't have to add to their faith. Christ is sufficient. Reminds me of just after Paul in Romans chapter 8. After Paul finishes his dialogue on the conflict of two natures as we end chapter 7. I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I really want to do. Woe, wretched man that I am. He says, Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to be condemned by the law as we've accepted Christ. The law points to our sin, points to our lacking, how we've missed the mark. Jesus is offering a better way. John 10.10, again, just as a compare and contrast, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and might have it abundantly. Backing up again, just a chapter and a half. Maybe this is something that someone in this room needs to hear desperately this morning. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You see, that was me as a kid, probably by the time that I was 10, I was so thankful for the church that I was raised in. It brought me to Christ, was baptized at that church, much like what we see behind us here. Somewhere subconsciously along the way, though, I learned incorrectly to keep a laundry list of my guilt, of my shame, of my sin. I would lay in my bed at night and pray, Father, forgive me. And I would start to list off all the things that I felt like I had done wrong that day. Maybe it was the ugly way that I spoke to my mother. 
I could not finish that prayer at night in my bed without saying, Lord, I'm sure I'm forgetting something. Please forgive me for that too. I felt physical tension in here if I didn't pray that prayer. Oh, that was a hard habit for me to break as I gained a greater understanding of what grace truly meant down the road in my faith. And so Paul says, I don't want that for you, Corinthian believers. These false apostles are going to lead you astray, and it might be a slight slice right off the bat, but if you continue down that path, you will land into the weeds, behind the trees, lost in the woods. Come back to me, because let me show you who I am for your sake, for the sake of the gospel. And so we continue in verse 21. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak as in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. I had a dear friend point out to me as we were reading through the second half of chapter 11 together, he said, you know, the word fool or foolishness has been presented about five times in this small snippet of Scripture. And so I kind of looked up what that word means, and depending upon your translation, what, what version of the Bible you're using, in any one of these references, it could mean to slander, to blasphemy, to be full of pride. And I thought, you know, Proverbs has an awful lot to say about foolishness. And I've listed only a handful of examples here as I flip back in Proverbs 10 just to kind of quote a few. Proverbs 10.8, in comparing, contrasting the foolish and the, and the wise, the wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be thrown down. Ten fourteen, wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. Ten eighteen, he who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. Because you see, Paul is being slandered here by these false apostles who are trying to come in and usurp what he has been able to do for these Corinthian believers as he's blazed the trail and heralded that truth in an area where the gospel had yet to be preached. Proverbs 12, verse 15. I have to own this one as a husband many times. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. And finally, just a small sample size here, Proverbs 13, verse 16. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. So it's not even that the fools don't think before they act. It's the fact that they actually are willing to brag about that and still act foolishly. We might even be able to think of individuals in our own lives that these might apply to. Maybe they're ourselves. Proverbs has a way of really highlighting wisdom and foolishness side by side. The Greeks were known for boasting in their feats, the boasting in their strengths. And Paul says, I'm going to play that game 
but it's not me, it's you, because I'm going to show you why I can boast in my flesh. I don't want to have to boast in my flesh because it's taking away from preaching the gospel. But you will allow me, since you tolerate others so much, you will allow me to boast in my flesh and show you just what has been suffered for the sake of the kingdom. And so in verse 22, Paul really begins to take his gloves off against these false apostles. This is bare bones at this point. He wants to start hitting where it hurts to win back the Corinthian believers. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. And so I've listed up here a little bit of what those names were, what those names might have represented. The, the, the term Hebrew itself means to cross over. And that could apply to Abraham uh, leaving the Chaldeans and moving to what would become the Promised Land. They'd be crossing the Jordan River to take the Promised Land. It could be leaving slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. But the Hebrews crossed over literally multiple times throughout their national heritage. The term Israel, you may remember, comes from Jacob after wrestling with the Spirit is renamed Israel. And eventually, after the split in the 12 tribes, the 10 northern tribes in the northern kingdom adopt that name, the Israelites. Post-exile, either to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Israelites used that name up until the time in which Paul's speaking. So it's like saying here in this room, are you a U.S. citizen? Well, sure, so am I. Are you an American? So am I. And we could begin listing any one of our credentials in our culture that helps us prove who we are to make a point. That's how Paul begins. I'm one of these individuals. But now he's really going to change course as we move into chapters 20, or verses 23 through 27. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, Dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Some translations simply say, in having been naked for the sake of the kingdom. It's kind of at that point where I, I want to say time out as a believer and, and ask myself, what, what did I just sign up for again? Come again? I'm sorry, could you? Well, maybe I don't really want you to repeat that, but I might need to hear that a second time. We might remember John 13, 16, and also in verse 20, one of the final things that Jesus does is wash his disciples' feet. Because there are two words that 
Paul uses here to contrast what these false apostles were in comparison to what he had done for them. Diakonos and Kopos. And diakonos, the word servant, means minister, often a term that we use to elevate someone in our society, in our culture, in the church. But minister means to perform menial tasks and duties. So he's actually saying these false apostles don't even understand the words that we're using here. Jesus would have looked in the eyes of Judas, who he knew was likely about to betray him, and still washed his feet. That's who we serve. Copos, toil, labor, and pains. I didn't put all of the definitions up there. Toil, wearisome, beating the chest, pain, wailing. Far more labors. Paul says, I have been in far more labors than these most eminent apostles. And so we'll see what Jesus has to say about this faith and the troubles that may come from it. If you look into John chapter 16, the end of the chapter, verse many of us might be familiar with, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage for I have overcome the world. If we back up from that to the beginning of that chapter, Jesus actually is warning his disciples what's about to come. These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming that everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. The story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10. What do I have to do to follow you? Towards the end of that story, Jesus says, because Peter had said, we have to love Peter. Many of us have been Peter. Lord, we've, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. If I could just take out that phrase, along with persecutions, that would sound amazing. I'm sacrificing for the Lord, right? Wait, I feel like the grandmother here who's discovered the internet for the first time. What am I looking at? What did he just say? I'm going to receive persecution for following you. We are likely familiar with James chapter 1 telling us to consider it joy when we face trials. Knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if we go back to Christ's sermon in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. 
Paul was being slandered by these apostles, so-called apostles. He wanted to write the ship. And so the Lord allows him to boast in his flesh to bring a comparison for the sake of the Corinthians so they could see the truth. And as we get near the end of chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, Paul reminds them, Apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure upon me of concern for the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul references at the beginning of chapter 11 that, again, he's looking at them as his children. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is that of the prodigal son. I have long been that prodigal. Many of us could probably share our own prodigal stories. What a beautiful message of falling away and running back and wanting to give excuses and the Lord, the Father, just running to hug and embrace and not even allowing the prodigal son who had been wayward, not even allowing him to give an excuse, just welcoming him back. But if we flip that story, how many of us have often felt like that prodigal father waiting for the son to come back, waiting for that daughter to come back, praying sleepless nights, pain, heartache, hoping for their return. That's what Paul is doing here for his Corinthians. And so he says, I'm not afraid to boast in my weakness and tell the truth, verses 30 and 31. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying to you. You see, as I did more research into this, I came across the Greek word praetes. And the word praetes means oftentimes translated in our Bibles as meek or as mild. And we think of turning the other cheek when we hear the phrase meekness. And in my simple mind, meekness rhymes with weakness and I can't, I can't move those two things apart. But praetes actually means According to Aristotle, the middle standing between two extremes, getting angry without reason. Paul is not just yelling at the Corinthians here without reason. And not getting angry at all. He's not just letting it go. It is the result of a strong man's choice to control his reactions in submission to God. It is the balance born in strength of character, stemming from confident trust in God, not from weakness or fear. See, Paul is not afraid to speak up on behalf of, the, of Christ, of his Corinthian believers, to bring them back. And as we wrap up verses 32 and 33, sometimes maybe prior to chapter and verse being inserted hundreds of years ago, these might have felt out of place. Verse 32, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall, and so escaped his hands. It's possible that this event occurred around 34 AD, shortly after Paul had spent three years in the desert. As his first way of triumphantly going back into the city of Damascus to preach to those, we can see in Acts 9, Verse 15, the Lord talking to Ananias, Ananias not wanting to go find 
Paul, who had recently just been transitioned from Saul. But the Lord said, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And in my mind, I thought of Scooby-Doo. Ruh-roh. God bless you. God, thank you for Paul. I don't know if I have that kind of strength. Acts 9, 22 through 25, Paul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And many days, excuse me, and when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. David Guzik says this is possibly Paul's apprenticeship, the way his ministry began. Confounding those in the synagogue, using Old Testament scripture to prove that Jesus is the Christ. And they didn't like it. And he was kicked out of the synagogue and ridiculed for the sake of the kingdom. And now it's happening again to him here in Corinth. We will continue to see in chapter 12 more of Paul's suffering, more of Paul defending his credentials as an apostle for the sake of the Gentiles in Corinth and elsewhere. Those who know me best know that a lot of time my mind thinks in song lyrics. I am not very gifted in singing. I played the drums in band for a few years because I couldn't read music very well. But I thought of Paul as the, one of the original Jesus freaks for those who might remember the band DC Talk of the 90s. Some of you may still listen to Toby Mac today, one of those three members. And no, I'm not going to wrap up here for you about a guy with a tattoo on his belly that says Jesus saves. But the lyrics of that song talk about the high and lofty seeing us as weak because we won't, li we won't live and die for the power they seek. Then it talks about John the Baptist and ultimately what happens to him and how he was perceived as being off and weird for the sake of the kingdom. But maybe it's not that difficult because the more I thought about it in my simple mind, the song lyrics came back to me from vacation Bible school as a child. You're welcome to sing along if you want. You know the lyrics. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Fair disclaimer for those of you that never went to vacation Bible school in the room and that was your first time hearing that song. We're not that weird, okay? But maybe little ones aren't always just talking about children. We are the little ones, and we are weak, and in our weakness, he can be strong. The very fact that there is a shadow and darkness in this world proves that there's a light that light shines and forces away that shadow. And if there's a shadow in my life, if there are cracks in my life, 
He will shine through them as the potter can do to the jar. Let's pray. Father, thank you for simple songs. <laughs> thank you for a congregation willing to, to sing along. I'm reminded of how Chris Tomlin sings that you're a good, good father. That's who you are. Thank you for being in this room. Thank you for loving us, for giving us this free gift of salvation. And Lord, if we're in this room and we have that slice in our freedom, if we have that slice in our salvation, in our walk, point that out to us, cut through us, mold us, bring us back to you. There may be someone in this room, Lord, who doesn't know you. And I would offer to them that it is such a simple prayer that I'm willing to help you with. And that doesn't always mean on the other end of it the icks and pains of life are going to go away. But that there is hope in you. Because you are a good, good father. We love you, Lord. Thank you for being with us today. Amen.